There are times when someone who is close to breathing their last is able to share what is important to them in that moment. Now, not everyone is afforded this opportunity. In fact, I think that most of us hope that we won't have that opportunity because don't most people hope that they will just sleep away and and not be aware of their impending demise? Yet there is something that we appreciate about the clarity that comes in those moments when someone is preparing to die that causes us to stop and wonder, what do they have to say? We want to consider what it is that they are thinking of in these moments that are their final moments. Now, I have a few statements that automatically come to mind for me when I think of famous last words. The first one that jumps right to the front of the line for me is from Martin Luther. As he was preparing to breathe his last, he was given the opportunity to recant his position of justification by faith alone through Christ alone, that position which had caused him to be excommunicated from the Roman church, who at the time it was believed that there was no salvation apart from there. And so he was offered the opportunity to recant, to take away what he had said. And his reply was very simple. He said, we are all beggars. And he was saying that he would not go back on his belief that God alone is the one who saves us and that we bring no righteousness of our own. We are all beggars before a holy God and we are reliant on Him to bring us salvation. And then there's one other final statement that always comes to mind for me, and that's from J. Gresham Machen. He was a Reformed pastor and professor in the early part of the 20th century. He was instrumental in the founding of Westminster Seminary in Philadelphia. And he was in North Dakota, and he was speaking at a church there. And he sent a telegram to a friend. So we don't know if these were actually his last words, but this is the last statement we have from him. And it was not too long before his death. And at the end of the telegram, he said, So thankful for the active obedience of Christ. There's no hope without it. And he was celebrating as he was getting close to his last moments the great truth that Christ not only died for us, but that He lived for us. Jesus was actively, perfectly righteous for you and I in order that all the righteousness might be fulfilled so that we could be saved and so that we could receive His righteousness as a gift. Now those are two final statements from people that I admire. And I'm sure if we dug around a little, we could find wonderful, meaningful quotes from the deathbeds of our brothers and sisters in Christ who have gone before us. As we find ourselves in our second to last week in the book of Genesis today, we find the final words of Jacob. As we have come to this point in Genesis, we have been drawing out the movement that has happened not only in the position of the people of God, but also in the individual life of Jacob as well. God has moved the people of the promise 
to Egypt from the land of Canaan by his divine hand for the purpose of saving them from a great famine. And this is something that that he alone could accomplish. And that's made apparent by the fact in how he did it. We saw the story. A Hebrew slave who was in prison has come to be only second in power to the Pharaoh. He has that much power and that much prestige, and he's a Hebrew, he was a Hebrew slave in prison. No way that plan was of human design. This wasn't man's idea. Only the sovereign hand of God can cause this to happen. And while that was a substantial change for the family of Jacob, there's nearly as big a change in Jacob himself. As you've heard me say so many times, all the way back even to the beginning of the story of Jacob, remember what a scoundrel he was and how he showed really no interest in the things of God. He was scheming. He was plotting to get things on his own. But as the story and as we've seen this all unfold, we have seen that he comes to rely on God. His life has been hard. His life has been riddled with difficulties. He's been literally limping through life. But now he has learned to trust in God. God has shaped him. God has formed him in such a way that he not only now trusts in God in his earthly life, but he believes that the promises that God has made to him will extend beyond his earthly life. Now I hope that looking at the life of Jacob here in Genesis has given you a new appreciation for the work that God does in the life of His people. Because it has been a beautiful reminder for me personally as, as I've been working through these passages how, we've see, how we see the hand of God doing the good work in the life of His people. Look at the change that we've seen in Jacob. And so where we find ourselves today in the book of Genesis is the last words, the last statements of this great figure in the story of God's people. These words not only show us faith and trust in the promise of God, but they show us also that Jacob is a prophetic figure. He is proclaiming the promises of God to the coming generations. As we look at what Jacob has to say, Now, we're not going to divide things up into three points like I usually do every week. The nature of the passage today doesn't really lend itself to this. Instead, what we're going to do is we're going to look at the big picture of what is being said in this passage. And I want us to start here in verse 1 and 2 of Genesis 49 and think about this statement that Jacob makes at the beginning of this prophetic word that he is uttering as his last words. And we see here that Jacob is clearly aware that the end is upon him. And so he wants his sons to come and to listen to him. They are to gather themselves together and come to listen to him. Now this this only makes sense to us. That they would want to come and see their father receive their blessings before his earthly life comes to an end. And Jacob tells them to gather together. Now, I think this is an important statement because my guess is that while we might perceive that they are one big family, they hang out together all the time, they know what each one of them is doing, 
we have to consider for a second that that probably is not the case. Because a few chapters back, what did we have? We had a roll call of how many of the people of Jacob came into the land of Goshen. And it was a decent-sized number. Back in chapter 46, we were told that the number of Jacob's people was 66. But now we need to remember, 17 years have passed since that roll call took place. Imagine how much that number has likely grown in 17 years. You know how the generations of your family have changed as people have aged and as their individual families increase in size. As someone gets grandchildren of their own, suddenly the focus narrows, right? To their status as the matriarch and patriarch of their individual family, instead of worrying about so much about the generation that came before them. And in 17 years, the number of people in the family of Jacob has likely more than doubled. And the focus would have become on the individual families of the children of Jacob, more so on their family as a whole. They're worried about their own legacies, their own possessions. So what does Jacob do? Jacob calls them back together. And before we think about the nature of what Jacob is saying here, I want us to think about the difference here. Because this is going to play out as we look at Scripture going forward. The difference in the way families are seen now with Jacob's family versus what we've seen in other parts of Genesis. This is interesting to consider. Remember, Abraham had multiple children. But there's no sense of any unity between Isaac and Ishmael, right? In fact, Genesis tells us about the persistent conflict that is going to exist there. And then Isaac had two children. In fact, they were twins. And we get no sense of a legacy of unity in Isaac's family either, right? So once again, there are actually statements about the continuing enmity between Jacob and Esau's families. This is the way Genesis has gone. That's kind of been the norm in Genesis, right? There are multiple occasions in Genesis where what we read is, yeah, those people over there that were born of so-and-so, they're your family, okay? But we ain't got nothing to do with them, right? That's kind of the way the story has gone. In fact, not only are we told that they're distant, uh, distant relatives, we're told, hey, they're our enemies now. There is no family unity. Now, you might have something like this in your family. I hope you don't have any enemies. But if you look at your extended family tree, with maybe with your parents, you'd be like, they would be like, yeah, we're related to so-and-so. And you know so-and-so. And you've never been to a family event with them. You're distantly related. That's kind of how Genesis is set up. There's all these people groups around, but there's no unity between them. At every point, there's disunity. There's en en enmity. And as I said, in many cases, they are enemies. There's no family connection between all these people that have been born of Abraham and Isaac at all. Like I said, that's been the story that we've been tracking through Genesis. But now suddenly there's something different here. The family of Jacob is going to change this. They will be distinct. They are Israel. There will be conflict among them, absolutely, like any family. 
But they are going to be the unified people of Israel. They will go into the promised land together. There is a unity with this family that we haven't seen in other parts of Genesis. And so it's important that we notice this because it's not, a, it's not that a, a few of these families are going to go into the promised land and inherit it later on. It is the children of Jacob together. Notice what Jacob says. Gather together. Assemble together. That's the vibe we're getting here at the end of Genesis. The rest of Genesis, the families are divided. But what is Jacob doing? He is having this prophetic word calling the people together. And as we know, because we know our Bibles, Israel is going to matter, right? So in this promise that Jacob is making here, he understands that God is going to deliver. God's going to bring the goods. And all of this gathering together of these people is a big part of these last words that entail Jacob's prophetic statement. And that is part of the reason we would call this a prophetic statement. He is speaking into the future the word of the Lord. He's going to tell them what's going to happen in days to come. And so, once again, they are told to assemble. They are told to listen. They're not to be a scattered people. They are a gathered people. And they're to listen to their father. To be the people of Israel. They will not only assemble to hear these words, but they will have to continue to remain united as his children in the future. Once again, unlike anything we've seen in Genesis previously, these are the gathered and assembled people of God, the children of Jacob, the nation of Israel. And with us understanding that underlying assumption and expectation, let's take a look at some of the highlights of this prophetic word. We won't look at all the details today. There's a lot there, but the first part of this prophetic word shows us that the three oldest brothers are not the primary heirs. Reuben should be. And if he can't fulfill the position, then it should be the next eldest. That is the way things went in the ancient Near East. Those were the rules. That's how inheritance, that's how legacy was passed on. The oldest received the blessing. Now remember back in Genesis where we heard some stories that were a little embarrassing for the family of Jacob. And we naturally kind of wondered, why in the world are these stories in our Bibles? Why are they there? Now we could probably easily think of a few examples of that from Genesis alone, but there are two specific incidents that I want to draw out because Jacob is talking about them. So we have to remember back when there was this offhand comment, I mentioned it last week, there's this offhand comment that Reuben went into his father's concubine. So that disqualified Reuben to be an heir. In fact, sexual immorality such as that was one of the only things in the ancient Near Eastern culture that could nullify the rights of the firstborn. A father could not just change the inheritance structure on his own volition. It could not be arbitrary. The oldest had a right to this. But what Reuben did, the sexual offense that he did, nullified what Jacob was obligated to do. Now the second story that impacts this inheritance situation is that story from quite a few chapters back that was particularly juicy. Once again, I mentioned it off of Mentioned it a little last week, but remember the people of Shechem when they were slaughtered after Dina was raped. 
And they actually brought the whole family of Shechem into their community, remember, by this ritual of circumcision. And then when the men were sick, Simeon and Levi led an attack that slaughtered all the men of Shechem. Yeah, that's not looked on as being a good thing by anyone. It's not, that story is not only against our modern sensibilities and we're disgusted. Culturally speaking, it didn't matter when that happened. That would have been looked down upon. That was evil. And both Simeon and Levi are disqualified because they led the charge. So those two are not going to be the heir either. So we have Reuben, Simeon, and Levi disqualified. So we can now understand why those awkward, uncomfortable stories are in our Bibles. Why they're included in the book of Genesis. It it helps us to understand why Reuben and Simeon and Levi are not the one on whom the promise rests. And so we ask the question, who is it? This prophetic word is coming from, from Jacob. Who is going to be the one on whom the promise rests? This is the story in the book of Genesis. Where is the promise line going to go? I've made this very clear through our journey through Genesis together. We're almost at the end, but you know all the way back from the beginning, from chapter 3, what have we been tracking in our journey? We're not just tracking a family story. We're tracking who is going to be the one from whom the promised Messiah, who will crush the head of the serpent, will come. Who is going to lead to the Messiah? And so what's the answer going to be? We know the answer if we think about it. We know because the promised seed of the woman, the Lord Jesus Christ, is the lion of the tribe of Judah. We hear that all the time around Christmas when we celebrate his birth, right? We have this idea. And so the only prophetic word spoken to a son of Jacob that we're going to look closely at today is the promise to Judah and his offspring as we look at verses 8-12. through And like I said, this doesn't surprise us too much, not only because we know who Jesus is descended from, but also because of the strong role that we've seen Judah taken in the story that that we have been looking at as, as the people of Jacob have been going into the land of Egypt. Judah has really been the leader of the, the greater family. And we drew out a few weeks back how he was willing to sacrifice himself for the sake of the rest of the family. I drew out how this was pointing us forward to Jesus. And as we read what it has to say about Judah here, we can easily see that he's the one on whom the promise is going to rest. Now you and I aren't experts on ancient Near Eastern language or tradition, but we can easily see in what we read here that this is a favored status that is being put on Judah as we look at what Jacob has to say about him. First thing we see, your brothers shall praise you. Yeah, that's about as obvious as it gets. Uh, But there's more statements that help us to understand the point. His hand will be on the neck of his enemies, and his father's sons shall bow down before him. We see here, Judah is the guy. He is the one that the promise is going to continue through. And so we now understand... Another awkward story from earlier in Genesis. We've had a lot of awkward stories. Why did we get these details of Judah and his immorality with Tamar and the confusing birth of her twins? You may not remember it in detail, but that was another juicy story. 
Well, it's because it is through Perez, the younger twin that came from Judah and Tamar, that this promise line will run through. And the idea of the primacy of Judah continues through this prophetic word offered from the mouth of Jacob. We had that awkward story with Judah and Tamar, his thinking that she's a prostitute. Eventually, we have to know who Perez, born of Tamar, is because he will lead to Jesus. Another thing that Jacob says here is that the scepter shall not depart from Judah. Once again, you don't need to be a scholar of ancient Near East traditions to understand this statement. This is royal language. We know what a scepter is. And then later on in the Old Testament, who is from the tribe of Judah? King David. Again, we are having this messianic line narrowed for us. We've been tracking this from Eve to Seth to Noah to Shem to Abraham to Isaac to Jacob. And now the line has been narrowed down to Judah. And there's a whole lot that is going on in the story of Genesis, but that's the big picture. That's the most significant part of what we find in Genesis. And it's the most significant part of Jacob's last words here. All the inheritance of things of the earth mean nothing without the promise of a continuing Savior. Even the eventual inheritance of the promised land for the people of Jacob means nothing if the promise of God to crush the head of the serpent doesn't come to pass. That is the crux of the story of Scripture. This is what the Bible is about. And this is our hope. And this is where we find our assurance of salvation. And this prophetic word will come to pass through the ages, beyond King David even, beyond the one born in the, with the animals in the stable, it continues down to you and I as the people of God. Because the descendant of Judah, he came, he lived a perfect life for you. And even though it would seem as though the promise to him would fail at his suffering at the cross. God kept the promise by raising him from the dead. And now the descendant of Abraham, the descendant of Isaac, Jacob, Judah, is seated at the right hand of the Father, and the scepter shall never pass from his hand. He is King Jesus. God has kept his promise. It did not, it did not leave the line of Judah and it will never leave His hand because He is the eternal Lord of heaven and earth. He is the victor. And so this is the promise that the dying Jacob ultimately is pointing forward to. And later on, we read at the end of this chapter of his death. Now the prophetic words here from um, up until through verse 27 have been about the future. But now as we start verse 28, we, we see Jacob speak, uh, the story of Jacob coming to a close. The prophetic words that he had to say are finished. And it makes a very interesting statement here in Genesis that you and I might just pass over if we were quickly reading it. It says that he blessed them with blessings suitable to them. He knows his sons. And he also prophetically proclaims that the descendants of these men are going to be like them, doesn't he? 
So and so, you are like this. Your descendants are going to be like that. He does that for each of his sons. But the emphasis here, as the chapter closes, is on this faith that has developed in the life of Jacob. Who he has become. He says that he is to be gathered to his people. Clearly, Jacob believes in something beyond his earthly life. Now you might object to this statement because Jacob immediately begins speaking as he says that he's going to be gathered to his people. He starts talking about how he's going to be buried with his family or how he wants to be buried with his family. Perhaps that is what he means when he says, I will be gathered to my people. You'll take my bones from here and put them with Sarah's bones and with Abraham's bones and Leah's bones. But this isn't just about the idea that his sons are to gather up his body and move them to the cave in Machpelah where Abraham is. It's not that he's just thinking that his bones are going to be with his family bo- family's bones. This is about something more. There is more to the hope that he has than just being buried with his family. And not only do we see this hope in the actions and statements of the people in Genesis, but as I have called upon many times, the book of Hebrews tells us that these people in Genesis were looking to another city, a city beyond this life. They were looking to salvation. And we see this spelled out for us as the death of Jacob is described. He makes a statement about being gathered to his people. And he puts his feet up on his bed. And this man that we have followed throughout a significant portion of the book of Genesis, we're told that he breathes his last. And then look what Moses has to say. He was gathered to his people. The children of Jacob did not that day take up their journey to deliver his bones to the cave in Machpelah. In fact, we see next week in Genesis that it was months later that they finally took him to Canaan to bury him with his people. But what does Moses say here? Moses says that he was gathered to his people then. That when Jacob breathed his last, he was gathered to his people. And we have confidence and trust that God not only did this great thing for Jacob, but He does it for all His people. Jacob was a sinner, a scoundrel, but God was at work in him. He made him His own. And He worked in His life to shape him and to form him in faith. And at the end of his earthly life, Jacob trusted that God would gather him to His people. And you and I are the people of God. And God calls and gathers us to Himself. Just as Jacob gathered his sons with a prophetic word, we are gathered each Lord's Day by the Word of the Lord. We hear the Word. And the Holy Spirit at work in us gathers us in. And it makes us the people of God together. And we proclaim God's saving work that He made us a people for His own possession And we believe that He not only gathers us here today and every Lord's Day, but we believe that He will gather us to our people in the next life. That's the prophetic word that is spoken throughout Scripture to you and I. This is our great hope. Just like the saints of Genesis, 
we are looking to and hoping for that city that is to come. Now, they didn't know back then the fullness of Christ as we do, but they hoped for it. And they had a trust that God was the one who would gather them to Himself. And so, as we assemble, and as we listen each week, as the gathered people of God, may the truth of Christ and Him crucified proclaim to us, give us faith like Jacob, that we might believe that God has gathered us to Himself, and one day He will gather us to our people. Amen.